Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today on the show, we have Apsara DeQuinzio, the Senior Curator of Contemporary Art at the Nevada Museum of Art, to discuss an amazing current exhibition about the artist Adeline Kent. Here's the press release about this amazing exhibition. The Nevada Museum of Art will host the first retrospective exhibition on one of the mid-century America's most innovative and under-recognized artists to occur in nearly 60 years in Adeline Kent, The Click of Authenticity. The exhibition features approximately 120 works that span Kent's entire career and will be on display at the museum in Nevada from January 28, 2023 to September 10, 2023. The exhibition will occupy the entire second floor, charting major thematic developments in the artist's work, which progressed from figuration to abstraction. Encompassing a diverse range of media, the exhibition includes drawings, original pictures incised on a hydrocal, a plastic mixture, sculptures both large and small, and a collection of terracottas, many of which have not been seen by the public in over half a century. Our conversation will give you a broad overview of Kent's biography, features and themes of her art, and how she speaks to our time. Please enjoy our conversation. Okay, so I'd like to set the stage today in talking about Adeline Kent, her legacy, uh, how we should view her in California history by kind of setting the stage with her family and her upbringing. Uh, She had important and influential parents that set a course for her potentially. And I wanted to hear from your perspective, uh, what you see the role her parents played on her in her life, but also in her art. Yeah, so Adeline Kent was born in 1900 on August 7th, and she was born to William Kent and Elizabeth Thatcher Kent. And they were leading environmentalists of their time and involved in the conservation movement. Um, They were friends with John Muir, and they actually acquired much of the land that's known as Kent Field today from Albert Emmett Kent, who was William Kent's father, he moved the family from Chicago um, in the late 19th century and settled in Marin County. And he bought the land, which is now Kentfield, from James B. Ross. And those areas are now known as Ross Kentfield in Marin County. William Kent and Elizabeth Thatcher Kent sort of took up the reins of the the environmentalist movement uh, in the early 20th century. There was a specific area called Redwood Canyon at the time that was being threatened by the logging industry and the construction of a dam. And they purchased that land and then donated it to the federal government in um, 1908. And of course, Theodore Roosevelt, who was president at the time, asked them, well, what should we name this area now? And um, I was thinking we should name it Kent Woods. And they, of course, demurred and and said, no, we think it should be named after our good friend, the naturalist and philosopher, John Muir. So that area is now known as Muir Woods. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So not only did they donate land that became Muir Woods, um, but they also donated land that became part of College of Marin, the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, and Tamalpais State Park. So a lot of the area in Marin County that is undeveloped today 
is thanks to their conservation efforts. And so Adeline Kent was growing up within within this milieu. This was all happening when she was a young girl. She was eight years old when they donated the land that became Your Woods. And at the same time, Elizabeth Thatcher Kent, uh, her mother, was a leading suffragette and was fighting for the woman's right to vote the same time. So so you have these two strains that are like environmentalists and also political. And I should say her father, William Kent, also became a congressman. And so the family moved to D.C. for a time. And um, Elizabeth Thatcher Kent was actually arrested several times in 1917 while protesting out on the steps of the Capitol. And those same steps where her husband was working inside of the Capitol building. And um, and of course, she was instrumental in getting the right to vote in the state of California in, I think, 1911. And then, and then later on in 1920. So that sort of political influence, I think, also carried over into her life. And she was very progressive and, um, you know, politically active. But she was also a great advocate and benefactor, in fact, even for other artists. So she, she went to Vassar College and I was actually just going to jump in and ask you of those three locations where she did most of her training, which, you know, or her education in Vassar and back in California and then in abroad in Europe, uh, which one do you think really had the most lasting influence on her art? I think they all did. Okay. I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put one over the other. I think California, Ralph, studying with Ralph Stackpole in 1923 before she goes, or I think it's... um. Yeah, 1923 to 24, she studies with Ralph Stackpole before she goes to Paris. And then she learns direct carving techniques from him. And he was a major artist in the Bay Area at that time, was close with Diego Rivera. He did major sculptures for the Pacific Stock Exchange building and the Golden Gate International Exposition in 1939. So he was really a leading artist um, that was a part of the monkey block scene in the early 1920s. And, you know, she goes to Paris in 1924 and studies with Antoine Bourdel. Um, and I think that that influences her and that, you know, he was known for his dynamic sculptures that have opposing planes and as a sense of shifting movement within the within them. And I think that that was really important for Kent's work later on, because it was very much informed by building movement into structural formations and art forms, even if it wasn't actual motion itself uh, it was it was implied through the dynamism of the form she was working with but then after paris in like 1929 she comes back to the bay area and um, takes up a studio at the monkey block um, and this is where uh you know a lot diego rivera and frida kahlo stayed at the monkey block building so this was really kind of the epicenter of artistic activity in san francisco in that in those in the early in the 20s and um, early 30s. And she stays in, in the Bay Area for the rest of her life at that from that point on. Um, she marries Robert Howard 
1930 and then becomes a member of the Howard family, which was known as the first family of Bay Area modernism. Everyone in the family was basically an artist or architect. And so she became part of this this big artistic clan that included people like Jane Berlandina, Henry Temple Howard, Charles Howard and Madge Knight, uh, John Langley Howard, who did a mural in Coit Tower. Henry Temple Howard and Robert Howard also were involved with Coit Tower. So that that family is was really also kind of central to artistic development in the 30s and 40s in the Bay Area. Can I ask a question? Jump in. Sure. How did the uh, how did the Great Depression uh, affect her art in terms of either patronage or resources that are dedicated to art? Um, what what effect did it have on her life? Yeah, it's hard to tell. I I haven't come across too much about that. I know that it impacted other family members more than it impacted her. You know, she comes from kind of elite background, a privileged background. You know, her. Her family um, had money, and you know, if you go to the old Kent house in in um, Marin County, you know, you, it's a this grand old house, and you know, the, it was constructed before the Golden Gate Bridge, and it was kind of an an elite resort area early on in the 20th century that you had to take a boat to get to. So I don't think it impacted her so directly in what she was able to do. She got married in 1930. Again, you know, this would have been the height of the Depression. And for their honeymoon, they go on a road trip down to places like Mono Lake and, and Death Valley and Devil's Post Pile. They took films of this so that so we we can see this. And, and that film is in the exhibition as well. And, and it's interesting in that film in particular, you know, you see some broken down cars along the way. But, you know, you don't really get a sense that it it impacted her so much, uh, although I'm, she was very uh, you know aware of what was happening around her and politically engaged. So it's not to say that she would have been isolated from it. But in contrast, someone like Charles Howard, who was the brother of her husband, Robert Howard, he was in New York at the time and he was he was really really struggling to make ends meet during the depression. So, so the Kent family offered some protection from that, I think. I see. Well, so we've talked about family influences. We've talked about her education. Let's talk about environmental influences. Like many of us who live in California and I live, you're on the other side of the Sierra Nevadas. I'm on the uh, Western side of them. They are sometimes the invisible because of the smog sleeping giants that, uh, that surround me. And I just finished reading a book uh, by Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, it's a book about the Sierra Nevadas. Oh, hi, Sierra. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I read that book too. <laughs> I, it's fresh on my brain right now. And so I'm thinking about, you know, the last times that I've been up in, in the mountains and uh, just the rock formations and just how you can get lost in the maze of them, the kind of the endless, endless inspiration that's up there. Can you share a little bit about why the Sierra Nevadas are important to her? Yeah, well, I'm glad you actually brought up that book, The High Sierra, too, because when I moved to Reno, that was one of the first books that I read because I I just it was also for research for this project, because um, Adeline Kent and Robert Howard spent um, their summers, much of their summers 
in the High Sierra and the Sierra Nevada mountain range, as well as other mountain ranges in Nevada and California. And um, they had a real love of the environment, the natural landscape, and specifically the mountains. And so they would go to places like Kings Canyon and and camp there for weeks at a time. And there, she, she took meticulous notes on all of the food that she would need to bring with her um, on those excursions into the High Sierra. And she was very fastidious about about the quantities and amounts and and what they brought. And they would they would um, often travel into these higher elevations with horses and mules and this this big camp equipment wrapped up on the back of a mule. And they they both gained great inspiration from their experiences in the upper elevations and in the mountains. And we we have some films in the exhibition uh, that they took on 16 millimeter film and they brought their camera into the High Sierra with them. And you can see a lot of the formations and mountain ranges and, you know, passes and areas that they were camping in and traveling across. And, um, you know, you see her sitting on top of the uh, you know, a, a rock with this just expansive sense of mountains receding mm. in the distance. And that very specifically, I think, informed her ideas about infinity and space and time, and which she applied directly into her work, very specifically using the infinity symbol um, as a kind of index for her experience of time and space in the mountains. And so um, you'll see the infinity symbol balancing on mountain peaks with uh, waterfalls cascading down in some of her hydrocal paintings. And then there's there's a painting she did in hydrocal of Sugar Bowl specifically, and they spent time at Sugar Bowl skiing in the winter and were actually early investors of Sugar Bowl, along with people like Walt Disney. And um, Henry Temple Howard, Robert Howard's brother, actually built the first chair ski chairlift in Cal in the state of California at Sugar Bowl. They had some unique history there. And so she painted uh, a painting about you know, her experience skiing at Sugar Bowl. And it's very abstract. You have like a, a sort of stick figure at the top of a mountain that looks like he's on skis and, and could be moving down or up the mountain. Ways that it influenced her could be, you know, the natural rock formations or striations that she found on rocks or in the landscape um, embedded in the mountain, the like the crystal forms of rock formations. She embedded all of that, the waterfalls, cantilevered ice formations, all of that became rich subjects for her work. Another motif in her art that I see is is the importance of the human body which kind of stands in contrast to the size and scope of the mountains. Can you talk about how she viewed uh, the human body in her art? Yeah, well, early on, before she becomes primarily focusing, before she focuses primarily on abstraction, and that happens really from 1940 to 45, when, she, when there are key reasons why that happens. But um, before then, she is making figurative work, primarily work, of younger children, women, and animals. Um, and so 
in, in those early sculptures, you see the female form in particular in a, a kind of regal, stoic, classical way, but it's it's not a way, it's not classical in the sense that it's um, exoticized or eroticized in any way. The, the women are distinguished for, you know, their strength and I think their athleticism too. Alan Kent, you know, it should be said, she was also an athlete. She was a, a gymnast. She was a dancer. She hiked. She liked to bike across France. You know, she she loved to be moving within the landscape. Um, she even had gymnast rings in her studio that she would use for both exercise and artistic uh, inspiration. Um, so I think that that the 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 body moving in space was something that was really key to her practice. Hmm. Let's step back a moment and think about kind of the world of art at this moment. There's always been the center of gravity that is New York, that is Europe, and that the West Coast in many ways, and we actually just had a, a conversation about this uh, uh, related to Civil War scholarship where we were talking about not, not much being written about the Civil War in California because in many ways, just throughout U.S. history, there's been this kind of gravitational pull towards the East Coast and what is the East Coast doing and setting the standard for things. And I know that's true in art in the 40s and 50s, New York being kind of the center of the universe in that way. So how how was she seen and her work seen in that time period when there was so much importance given to that milieu in New York? Yeah, well, she she went to she traveled to New York frequently. Um, she showed with the Betty Parsons Gallery for almost a decade, beginning in um, the late 1940s, 1949 was her first show. And Betty Parsons was somebody she actually met in Paris back in 1924. Betty Parsons was an artist and um, and Betty Parsons was known for showing all of the great abstract expressionists in the 50s and early 40s, like Clifford Still and Mark Rothko, Jackson Pollock. And so Adeline Kent was really a part of that milieu. When Mark Rothko and Clifford Still taught at the California School of Fine Arts in the late 40s and early 50s, they stayed at Adeline Kent and Robert Howard's house, which was just around the corner from the school the California School of Fine Arts. Um, Adeline Kent was close friends with Jean Reynal, who had a studio up at Soda Springs in the mountains. And um, they often stayed with her when they went skiing at Sugar Bowl. And then Jean Reynal moved to New York later on and established her studio there. So I think there was really like a back and forth dialogue between San Francisco and New York at the time. And Adeline Kent and Robert Howard were really a part of that. But it is true that that you know you think of New York and Paris as being a kind of epicenter of artistic activity in the early 20th century. And it's true that when European artists fled Europe and came to the US in 1940, that catalyzed a kind of renewal in abstraction, specifically in the Bay Area. And prior to that, it had been primarily figurative. And, and you see that in Kent's work too. In 1940, there's um, her work shifts when Charles Howard and Madge Knight move 
from England. They were showing with a lot of the surrealists at the time and working primarily abstractly. But when they and Stanley Hayter and Helen Phillips, and Helen Phillips was a friend of Adeline Kent's from the California School of Fine Arts also, when they moved to the Bay Area, that also helps to ignite abstraction. And that's during the war period from 1940 to 45, when a lot of those surrealist artists and abstract artists were living in the United States. I think that there are key developments that happen in California across time that don't happen in New York. And you could say the same. There are key things that happen in New York that develop in California in different ways or don't develop in California. And so geography really becomes a kind of contextualization of how artists develop and work over time. As some of my listeners probably know, she was taken from us too early, passed away after a an accident on that terribly scary freeway that many of us have driven on and is never feel safe, no matter how much of a tank you're driving in down that road. Um, yeah, what, 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 what was cut off from her? Where was she at in her artistic development? And what do you, where do you think personally she would have gone? Yeah, that's a really interesting, important question. She died in 1957 at the age of 56 and, you know, she was really in her prime at that point, showing with the Betty Parsons Gallery. The critic Clement Greenberg had singled her out in one of her exhibitions as being an artist to watch. And of course, he would go on to become a very powerful figure in the New York art world. And so she she died right at the, the point where she was she would have been gaining increasing recognition in her career. And so that kind of cut, although she was very prolific before she died. So we do have a, a large amount of work from her still, but, but probably cut short, you know, so much more work that would have come after that point. And, you know, it's interesting. She died in 57. So that this is right before the sixties and things, you know, changed so drastically in the sixties. So it's, and with the countercultural movement. And so you, and her work is, is very ethereal and informed by nature and kind of mystical and otherworldly. So, you know, I wonder how like the cult countercultural movement would have impacted her work. And I wonder how the feminist movement would have impacted her work because she was really a kind of proto-feminist early on, kind of like, you know, she she took pilot license, flying lessons when she was in her early 20s. You know, she was an adventurer and she wasn't going to let anything stop her. <laughs> so she was she was kind of this strong, thoughtful character. And, you know, I wonder... I wonder how the feminist movement would have impacted her work. Yeah, I think uh, the 60s were sad they couldn't have her and she wasn't a part. I um, want to pivot now to talking about the exhibition at the Nevada Museum of Art. And I want to start with the title um, and have you kind of clarify what the title means. So there's this word used, authenticity. Uh, what does that mean in the context of Adeline Kent? Yeah, so the subtitle of the exhibition is The Click of Authenticity. 
she, that, those were her own words. She wrote that in a poetic note that she, she wrote in her studio. And she often kept a lot of scraps of paper around in her studio. And she would, she would have these like intuitive flashes as she referred to them and write down things that she thought of. And, and this was a particularly striking poetic note that she wrote. And it ends with the phrase, I want to hear the click of authenticity. And I think that that really refers to this kind of creative drive that she had to make something that was innovative and inventive and 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 also spoke to cultures across time, had a kind of timeless quality to it. So she she would say things across time. I want to hear the click of authenticity. So that click was, you know, the kind of experience or, or feeling that she had when she she knew she made a successful work of art that was innovative and then spoke to objects across time. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about what's included in the exhibition. So I believe it said there's 120 pieces of her art um, at the exhibition. What are some of the highlights for you? Yeah, there's just over 120 objects. And that, of course, doesn't include the artifacts that we put in the vitrines as well, the archival materials. In the exhibition, you'll see a wide array of work that she was making from very early on in her career um, in the late 1920s throughout you know, the 50s until she died. The first room is, is dedicated to that early figurative work. The second room is devoted to her experience in the High Sierra and the concept of infinity and how she embedded that into her work specifically and how it related to her experience of space and time in the mountains. And the third room focuses on movement and balance in her work. So movement was very important, but but it also had to be something that was balanced and, and maintained a sense of equilibrium within the composition. You'll see work that is very dynamic in that sense. And then the next gallery sh uh, showcases a series of terracottas that she made after she returned from a trip to the Mediterranean in 1954. And all of the ancient land formations and buildings and artifacts that she came across in Egypt and Sicily and Greece inform the, the objects that she made out of terracotta in that room. And those terracottas, I think, are really extraordinary. And then the last room showcases some of her large-scale work on paper. She made really expressive drawings use, utilizing ink and charcoal and um, pencil. And I think those can really be seen within the context of abstract expressionism and um, the Dinatin movement that took place in San Francisco in 1951. And all of those Dinatin artists were her friends, although she herself didn't consider herself a Dinatin artist. She was making work that uh, dealt with the same subject matter. And then some of her large-scale sculptures as well are in that gallery, uh, such as Finder, which I really think of as being her masterpiece. And this is a, a work that's in the Los Angeles County Museum of Arts collection. And then you'll see other sculptures from SFMOMA's collection and the Whitney Museum of American Arts collection as well. So we really tried to, to assemble all of her, you know, great 
works. Mm. Is there a piece in your exhibition that speaks to you individually in a personal way that you can share? I really like the works where she is experimenting with this infinity symbol because it is it it does become this kind of signature motif for her. And it is a really authentic, original motif that she develops. And she uses it both in two-dimensional forms and three-dimensional forms. There's one little sculpture, it's tiny, about just a couple inches across called Link. And it's a, a three-dimensional infinity symbol made out of terracotta. And it and it fits just in the palm of your hand. And, and it's really just beautiful and exquisite and quirky too. There's, there's kind of like a quirkiness and playfulness to her work that I think is really wonderful. Another work is Dark Mountain, where again, she embeds this three-dimensional infinity symbol but this time it's using negative space. So she's she creates a kind of mountain peak that's dark, painted dark black or dark brown. And then she punctures it and creates these apertures that are then slope down the sculpture in this infinity kind of symbol formation. And so to me, that sort of speaks about deep time embedded within the mountain. Um, and so I love that work in particular. Her hydrocal painting journey I think is really interesting too. This is in the, the gallery that focuses on movement and balance. This work I think is about atomic energy in a really interesting way. In the, in the lower left corner of the painting, you see this little scientist bending over his desk. There's a, a lamp on his desk that's kind of like a mushroom form. And then in the scent, and then you see these little atoms kind of gravitating towards the center of the composition where there's this flux of activity. And then these kind of dynamic arrows shoot off in opposite directions as if this, there's like this explosion that's about to happen and, and um, energy is going to be released. And then in the upper right-hand corner of the composition, you see this um, railway track that sort of stretches out into the desert where, and you see this kind of like mushroom cloud. And so that, that work is, I think really, and it's done in 1946 you know, just after the war. And so that that's, I think, a really interesting work as well. There's a lot. I mean, I could keep going. Yeah, I'm sure you could <laughs> gush about her work. Before we end with uh, book recommendations, I'm hoping that this exhibition brings this kind of renewal or renaissance in terms of interest in her work. And when things are rediscovered, they say new things to, you know, different time periods and different contexts. What do you think Adeline Kent's work has to say to our specific context in 2023? Yeah, for me, the exhibition is very timely because we are at this moment within our culture that we are exploring overlooked or under-recognized artists who were not a part of the canon, so to speak. Um, and so we're re really rethinking the canon and, and trying to incorporate and think about all those artists who were sort of marginalized or left behind. Um, and so, so for me, this is a really important exhibition in that sense, because, you know, this, a lot of the work that's in the exhibition hasn't been seen in 65 years because her last solo exhibition took place in 1958. It was a memorial exhibition that took place at, at um, what is now SF MoMA. 
it's important in that sense, but also with the climate crisis and how nature was was the sense of the infinite for her. She would be horrified by what's happening right now to the environment and the climate crisis. And, and, you know, her work, I think, teaches us to respect and find freedom and inspiration within nature and to live with it and respect it. So our last section is always book recommendations. And these could be uh, books about Kent, or it could be books about her context or books about her artistic milieu. Uh, what would you recommend for the audience to read? Well, I have to give a shout out for the exhibition catalog. Of course, <laughs> this, of course. For this exhibition. Um, it's the first scholarly publication on Adeline Kent's work. And so in that sense, you know, if you if you want to learn more about her work, it's really the only place to go. There are a few other books. There was a book called Autobiography that was done for that memorial exhibition that uh, collects a lot of her writings. And so that's also a great resource to hear her thoughts and, and what she thought about her work. In terms of other books, I think if if you're looking to re learn more about California art, art that's been made in California, a new book called Art in California just came out. And it's written by Jenny Sorkin, who's a professor of art history at UC Santa Barbara from the World of Art series by Thames and Hudson. And it's really, you know, a history of modern and contemporary art in California from the early 20th century to the present. So if you want to delve into California art, um, that's a great resource. I'm also, I'm sort of still reading, still trying to get through The Dawn of Everything by David Wengro and David Graeber, which I think is really profound and incredible reassessment of everything, <laughs> as is noted in the title, mostly humankind and um, specifically through the lens of indigenous perspectives and indigenous knowledge that has been overlooked or, or cast aside or marginalized or not even considered <laughs> over, you know, the course of human history. And so I, it's really profound and eye opening. And I uh, especially loved a section on Kondiaronk, who was the chief of the Wendat people in what is now known as Canada and around the Montreal area. And he was a, just this incredible thinker and philosopher. Just hearing his thoughts, I actually have a quote that I I come back to over and over that he said, Kondiaronk says this in The Dawn of Everything. And he says, to imagine one can live in the country of money and preserve one's soul is like imagining one could preserve one's life at the bottom of a lake. Mm. Oh my God, that just, that is incredible. <laughs> I go back to that again and again, but um, yeah, he was fascinating, Kondiaronk. Anyway, that's that's just this incredibly illuminating book that you kind of have to go through very slowly in order to really take it all in. Wonderful recommendations. To close, how long is the exhibition going to be going on and um, how can people find more information? Yeah, fortunately, you have plenty of time to still see the exhibition. It's up until September 10th. 
of this year. You can come out and check it out. There's also some other objects that we created as part of the exhibition, like scarves, original designs that she made that were not realized during her life. And so we realized them for the first time and, and some um, textile fabrics that she made, we made a pillow of. So there's, there's also fun things to take away and take home with you if you're able to come out and visit the show. Wonderful. Well, thank you for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating or review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.